My name's Andre Longley, and my guest this week on the Ham and Hyde podcast is Labour leader and leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer. Keir is MP for Hoban and St Pancras, and we discuss his route into politics and what he sees as the radical solutions we need today. Keir Starmer, thank you very much for joining us on the Ham and Hyde podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really good that we got round to it. It's brilliant to do it. Obviously, we're talking on Zoom because we're we're talking at the start of February and we're still in lockdown. How are you finding lockdown? How's how's it being in the in the house? Look, it's really hard, and uh, I think, like everybody else, I think the third lockdown, the one we're in now, is is proving to be the hardest of them all. I don't know whether it's just that it's been going on so long, um, or whether it's that we know with the vaccine that you know there is that light at the end of the tunnel, and therefore it seems harder. But I think many people are finding this harder it's frustrating you know um uh, i was elected as leader of the labor party in april of last year and i haven't yet addressed a room full of people um i've only ever spoken into a camera to deliver speeches um etc so there's a, a degree of frustration but look we're all in this in the same boat if you like and uh, the sooner we can get that vaccine rolled out the better absolutely we we hired the paper we hired a chief reporter last april i think it was and i've only met her twice <laughs> everything's been so um, remote which is which is crazy now, listen, then, you, but then you have these flashes of emotion when you do things that um you haven't done so i went to one of the mass vaccination centers and just the human emotion of seeing people smiling human beings in a room was incredible um yesterday i went to heathrow to see the operation there but again the the smell and the feel of an airport um all these things that we're missing mm, yeah it's it's gigs for me do you ever go to live music I do, yeah. I haven't been for a while, um, and I don't go that frequently anymore. But it's nothing. The Roundhouse, I think, was the last thing I went to. Ah, really? What was that to say? Edwin Collins uh, was uh, there. Uh, I can't remember now. A few years ago, um, so that was fantastic. Of course, because he was one of your uh, your um, musical heroes. My Desert Island Discs, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, well, he had a, a bit too much detail. But he had a stroke a few years ago, and then he's been. Uh, he's done a few gigs since then, so uh, he went to the Roundhouse, and the Roundhouse is great anyway. Um, so it's great to go there. Yeah, no, I met him shortly after the the stroke. I think it was at Queens Park Literary Festival, and he's he's been finding his way back since then. But a r- remarkable man. Yeah, anyway. and his his son again too much. Detail, his son plays football with me on a Sunday now, so uh, it's a small world. You say now, obviously not right now. No, not at the moment. We've had, I think. Um, six games in the last I don't know 10 months so not in not normally a weekly game is reduced to, to six so that was in must be in September October. Anyway you and I are in danger of talking about football for the next 20 minutes so I'm <laughs> going to change the subject now. Um, what, what I want to talk about today is uh, is your 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 background a bit um, but how it leads into what your politics are and what your politics are because obviously that's been something that's been talked about uh, in the media and, and by various parties so I want to get to that. Um, what, what kind of child were you? I was the second of four um, and we were a family growing up on the Surrey Kent border. My dad was a toolmaker, so he worked in a factory as well. My mum was a nurse, um, but she gave up being a nurse um, when she had children and then she was um, very ill for uh, most of her life. She had a rare disease called Stills disease, um, which affected her very badly as as time went on. So um uh, and uh so i was one of four in a uh, in a family on the surrey kent border 
And and what kind of a boy were you uh, always out playing football? Were you listening to music? Was it all toys? It was um, pretty football focused. So um, I think when I was growing up, I was playing at least for two teams every Saturday and Sunday. And most days I was playing football. So I've always had this complete passion for playing football. So um, a lot of that. But I was doing it. I mean, I, I actually went to the Guildhall School of Music on a Saturday because I was a um a junior um exhibitioner there um for a number of years um and then at the school I was at right uh, we played rugby as well so quite a lot of sports um and uh, a lot going on what what instruments do you play i well i now almost nothing um i played the flute um and the piano and uh, a bit of the violin as well but i okay. don't anymore i hasten to add i'm not about to pick up an instrument um, <laughs> under my desk and uh, and play anything because it's given me a lifelong love of classical music um, as well as popular music but um, uh, I don't play anymore. Well if anybody's got any secret recordings of his musical past send them in. Well <laughs> so no, you... my, my, my claim to fame is that I had violin lessons with Fatboy Slim who went to school with me so uh, there were the two of us uh, in our violin lessons so uh, if you hear any of his uh, songs, you'll know that uh, that's where it all started. <laughs> it, could, uh, it could have been you. Um, so we, we know that you'd, you've talked a lot about you went into becoming one of the um, Surrey Young Socialists and got politicised that way. But but when did that happen? Were you still at school when you got engaged in politics? Yeah, I was, I think I joined when I was 16 years old and into the East Surrey Young Socialists, which was the sort of youth wing, if you like, of the East Surrey constituency Labour Party. There weren't many of us, I have to admit. I think the peak membership of the East Surrey Young Socialists was about five or six. Um, so we were thinly spread. But that's when I that's when I first uh, got involved in Labour Party politics. I used to be news editor at the Surrey Advertiser in Guildford. So I know that the, the Surrey landscape rings rings true. Um, yeah. What what was it that that brought you into that though? Was it people you were hanging around with, or or something you read, or music? Was it a Bob Dylan moment, or? No, it was a combination of things really. I mean, we were a pretty Labour household. Um, my dad was staunchly uh, Labour, and so you know, insofar as we talk politics much at home, the politics was Labour Party politics. Um, uh, I had friends who were interested in politics, and we talked through you know Labour Party politics. And, and actually the constituency party were very welcoming um, and therefore the sort of combination of that led me into the Labour Party pretty much as soon as I could join. I think 16 was the joining age. I can't quite remember now. Um, and um, as I say, our little uh, band of five or six sorry, young socialists uh, would then um, plot a different world from from Oxted. You've... You've said before that um, obviously politics does move on from when you're a you're a teenager, um, and you know clearly people people grow up. Um, you've also said more recently that you genuinely believe we need more to be more radical than we are in terms of transformation of our country. Um, at the moment, there's a perception, possibly unfairly, in the the media that you're less radical than Labour's been in the last couple of years. How does that uh, feel? Um, I, I think it's very important just to um, understand where we are politically at the moment. I think that, um, you know, since I've been leader of the Labour Party, we've had, what is it, 10 months, all of which has been a pandemic. Um, and in those 10 months, I felt very strongly that um, the first priority should be understanding the scale of the defeat in December 2019, where we lost 
to everyone everywhere um, acknowledging that and accepting that and and, and um, part of my message to the Labour Party in my Doncaster conference speech albeit on Zoom was um, if you lose that badly don't blame the electorate um, you look at yourself and to begin to build trust and competence in the Labour Party. Now of course that on its own isn't enough to win an election and um, nobody ever thinks it is um, nor do I. That's the foundational stone. I actually think that now as we come you know rolling out the vaccine we are now getting to a real fork in the road and that's where your question really um brings us into sharp focus because you know we as we go forward we now have to lay out our plans for what the future holds and this will be labor's plan into 2024 and i will i'm doing a speech in fact next week i think more or less when this podcast comes out um which which will make it clear that um, so far as the Labour Party is concerned, we're not going back to business as usual, because although it is true that um, the Prime Minister's delay and indecision and slowness have have had profound consequences in the pandemic. You know, we've got 100,000 plus dead more than any other country in Europe. We've got you know, the biggest recession of any um, major economy. But it was the structural weaknesses, actually, that were there, the inequalities, the lack of funding for public services, the lack of resilience for the NHS. They're the deep causes of this. And so I'll be setting out how the next stage of the political journey for the Labour Party now into 2024 is setting out that um, bold um, future plan. It's almost the sort of aptly moment, I think, for us, the, the spirit of um, the Labour government after the first uh, after the Second World War, um, in terms of the change that we need to bring about through a you know uh, uh, tackling those inequalities and um, you know after that sort of sacrifice and that sort of solidarity of the last year, I think that we've got to move forward and and so there is this fork in the road. And how's that going to look? Because I think some on the left of the party are worried that that might just look like well we'd raise universal credit by. 20% more than the Tories and that's clearly not radical that's oh no it's got to be much more profound than that if you look I've, I've studied and uh, the uh, Michael Marmot who's obviously local um, at University College fantastic professor um, has done a 10-year study of inequality 2010 to 2020 um, and if you and, and in that he lays bare inequality of almost every type you know whether that's um, wealth income power health in particular um and um an incoming labor government in 2024 has to has to be bold enough to tackle all of that of course universal credit is is an important issue but it it, it is an issue within a much much bigger project if you had a if you became prime minister and had a clear majority in parliament would you just get rid of universal credit entirely and in which case what would it be replaced with well i i don't think universal credit has worked very well there have been at the same time as putting into some sort of use, universal form of um, um, benefits which I'm not against some form of that because I can you know all the different benefits weren't working very well there was a lot of money taken out of the system and there are structural problems you know the money isn't paid up front sometimes you have to take loans the number of people I have in my constituency have got problems with universal credit mm. uh, is, is, is second only to the housing um, problem I think there are other things I would change Andre as well one of my concerns is that if you only have one benefit paid universally, it's usually paid to one person within the household. That is a problem where you've got um, 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 domestic um, abuse, where you've got domestic violence or just, um, you know, 
coercion within the yeah. House. So there are, uh, I, I do think it needs reform. I mean, I've been quoted slightly out of context here. I'm not, I'm not suggesting for the moment in the middle of a pandemic that you scrap the benefit systems that we've got now. Um, of course not. But in the longer term, uh, I think there is a better uh, structure for that. But that's only one part of it. The, the biggest challenge in terms of um, the fork in the road and building stronger going forward is uh, a fair and thriving economy. We need a thriving economy. Economy, And if you look at the economy as we went into the pandemic, it was failing pretty well on its own terms. It was short-term investment with low standards, low skills, um, low returns, and lots of people on fragile contracts. And lots of people in the business world would say that wasn't a model that was delivering. But how does the, um, for you, how does the uh, improved economy actually help with issues of equality you've talked before about the life expectancy of summer's town compared to primrose hill which i think 10 years was the figure quoted at the time you we you get a stimulated economy how does that help those people well the the economy drives up standards and drives up um wages and we need a high wage high standards economy etc but that disparity that you point out is very real that 10 year I mean, more or less it may be slightly different figures now i looked probably about two years ago but the idea that within the constituency of hopeless and pancreas there is a as big a gap as a 10-year um difference in life expectancy is huge now i mean in Somerstown, obviously you've got issues of housing um you've got issues of geography you've got all of the work that's gone on around it you've got issues you know, I, I've been very, very keen to work with the businesses in King's Cross to try to get them into the schools in um, Somerstown and elsewhere um, to give children, young people an idea of what is around them in terms of um, skills and, and possibilities. And so there's a, you know, for somewhere, you know, one of the things about um, Somerstown and other places is that there's, there's a lot of work that really needs to be done in order to try and iron out some of these inequalities. And, and a lot, you know, quite a bit of that's going on. Um, but to have a 10 year um, life expectancy difference is pretty stark within one. I mean, most people say, well, that'll probably be across the whole of the country or something or even you know, across several countries, not a few miles within the borough of Camden. And obviously we're using this as an example. I suppose what I'm trying to get my head around is what are the radical solutions you're talking about and to 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 address this um what you've just mentioned there in terms of getting businesses involved and um in schools and showing what opportunities are out there is, is that an area is is business the the route you see to to making these changes oh there has to be a new partnership with business and that's one of the things i argued for in my cbi speech which i gave of course on zoom um, in the um, autumn, which is working with businesses to get that thriving but fair economy. Um, and that, that is a, a very real partnership. There has to be more than that, but I think it's very difficult to see a way out of this. You, you cannot um, recover and go on to a better and different Britain um, if you introduce tax rises and throttle off um, any recovery. But equally, if you cut back and go back to austerity, both of those routes will throttle off um, uh, the recovery. And so um, that thriving but fair economy is central to this. On its own, it's not enough because obviously three central pillars are um, dealing with inequality between the ages of 0 to 18. Because if you haven't dealt with it, then and that means a first class education for everybody um, at the very least and sure start and the, and the support that goes around it. You then need a middle pillar, if you like, which is you know, a fair 
um, economy that works for people um, in terms of skills and wages um, and dignity at work. And then, of course, the bit that we haven't done enough on as a country, which is security and dignity in older age. And if um, you know, the, the pandemic has brutally exposed a number of things, but one of them is um, the um, way in which um, security and dignity is often lacking when it comes to older people, particularly in the care sector. Just in the last couple of days, the um, government's been talking about reforms to the health service. And what you've been saying obviously raises questions of, of social care. What's your initial impressions of the direction the government's taking at the moment? Well, firstly, it's a recognition they got it completely wrong with the Lansley reforms because uh, they went down that route. And, you know, Matt Hancock, health secretary, voted for Lansley, argued for Lansley. And so we've had 10 years or eight years, nine years now. Of, of a system which was never going to work and everybody was told it wasn't going to work in the first place. So um, that is a huge problem. Um, but what the government is replacing it is runs the risk of being not much better, because although a degree of local tendering is gone, there is still the possibility um, for um, at a local level contracts to go out and, and a lot more power into the hands of the health secretary. Now, obviously, there's a lot of detail to go through yet, um, but um, I would personally say that the priorities for the NHS and my wife works in the NHS so we, and my mum worked for the NHS and my sister worked for the NHS so we've got a bit of NHS running through our blood here but the, the, the at the moment um, it's the waiting list because obviously there's a huge number of backed up operations and it's it's the staff the numbers of staff um, and the security and pay of the staff that are two crucial things and I think a lot of people would be saying uh, is this really the time um, for this reorganisation? Because once the NHS is through dealing with the pandemic, which, of course, is still um, a huge strain at the moment, there is then, you know, this huge backlash, backlog of cases that they've got to get through. And so, I mean, but we'll look at the details. of it. The other thing I should say, Andre, going to the other point is there's not much in the white paper about social care, of course. Mm -hmm. The Conservatives for 10 years have been saying they're going to bring forward <laughs> plans on social care. Um, mm -hmm plans never arise arrive on the um the issue of contracts and and in fact on business well there's a slight contrast isn't there with in your uh, manifesto for the leadership you talked about common ownership bringing you know rail mail energy etc in back into to common ownership as an aim and yet we're talking about the role of business in other areas is that still is common ownership still on the table and in your in your sites. I think there are four different forms of um, uh, approaches. I, I think it's perfect. If you take take an example in criminal justice, in my view, having worked in criminal justice, quite a lot of the contracting out of the private sector just didn't work, um, and it ended up with delays in court, delays in um, the administration of justice and and in certain areas um you know probation is the classic example the government then had to claw it all back um in-house so I, I think anybody who holds to the view that the private sector always delivers or the public sector always delivers it, it is wrong it's got to be a combination of the two but to grow the economy going forward we do need um, a future looking economy where we've got that new partnership with business and look at our constituency you've got the Turing Centre there um, just um, you know in King's Cross which is the most amazing centre for big data I mean the, the, the future is about big data it's about high tech 
um, and um, IT. And a lot of that is around us in, in St Pancras and uh, Heaven and St Pancras. Um, and that's where you need a very strong partnership with business going forward. And I don't see the two. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. And you've got you've got to have both. So I'm conscious we're, we're slightly low on time. Um, and I do want to get onto another topic, but just quickly on common ownership, is nationalisation of energy, rail, water, is that in your sights? I, I, I use the term common ownership because I actually think there are different forms of ownership. I'm very strong on co-ops, etc. But at the moment, what's in my sights is the is the fork in, fork in the road and the transformation we're going to have to make coming out of this pandemic. And that's, um, as I say, what I'm going to set out in some detail in the speech I'm giving on the day the podcast um, goes out. And so uh, you'll have this and that alongside each other. It, it strikes me that compared to other times and other periods in politics, what we're facing now environmentally is an existential threat. We're not just talking about improving the world with politics. We're talking about actually what needs to be done to save it in anything resembling its current form. Um, Labour's had the, the Green New Deal. Is that radical enough? Well, I think the environment is absolutely central. And I think that um, one of the mistakes we made after the 08 crash was to take our eye off the um, climate change challenge. Um, the um, security of the economy, obviously a huge thing, became so dominant that um, basically a decade was lost, I think, on environmental issues. Now, climate change has to be central to everything we do, which is why um, one of the commitments we made about an incoming Labour government in 2024 is that um, every policy, everything that we introduced, um, would be assessed for its impact, obviously, um, in terms of value for money and other impacts, but also its impact on climate change, because it's got to be so central to everything we do. And just before Christmas, um, Ed Miliband um, for us outlined the plan we have um, for the next few years, if we were in government, to to bring forward up to 400,000 jobs in, in, in the low carbon sector. Um, so green jobs, for want of a better um, word, has to be central to everything that we do. There are real opportunities there, but it's also a duty, I think. There's also obviously the international element of this. And I'm very, very pleased um, that we now have President Biden, because I think that will usher in a new era globally um, um, around initially the Paris agreements uh, to tackle climate change. On a very local level, obviously, one of the um, environmental changes in the last year has been the introduction of lots more traffic measures to try and re reduce traffic which has got a huge reaction um, and faced vocal opposition, as well as a lot of support. Do you think they, as a general policy, that's good? But also, do you think that we have to accept that to um, tackle environmental problems, it's going to hurt? Yeah. I mean, firstly, I think we need to understand what it is that Camden Council is trying to achieve. And they're trying to deal with um, climate issues such as air pollution. And um, air pollution in Camden is a very real issue. Um, when you look at the statistics for air pollution, particularly in some areas in Camden and Hoban and St Pancras, um, they're pretty shocking. So something has to be done. And what's driving some of these changes is the desire to do something about that. Now, when you introduce traffic um, systems, some of them work, some of them don't. Um, I think that is inevitable. The experience I've had in the um, five and a half years I've been MP is that 
um, where some of them being introduced, there's been um, a degree of concern about them. Then they settle down and actually they've worked out all right and most people have accepted them. Others, not so much. And um, some of the recent ones, I think, um, have been reversed now by the council. I think there needs to be that flexibility. But what's driving this is this um, desire to uh, lower air pollution in Camden. That is the right thing um, to do. And in, if we can encourage people to use their cars less, then that is a good thing. Um, and that involves, amongst other things, very good um, public transport. And do you think it's indicative that actually it is going to hurt sometimes when uh, to, to actually get the changes we need for the world? Well, we've got to change the way that um, we do things in order to uh, take account of climate change. And sometimes that is, it does mean people changing their habits and behaviours. Um, you know, I, I think a lot more people would walk and cycle where they can. Um, if they thought it was safer to do so. Not everybody can walk and cycle. I completely um, get that, particularly um, having had a mother who was in a wheelchair for many decades. It's not <laughs> not everybody can um, walk and cycle. But by and large, the, the, the easier um, and safer we can make it for people to walk and cycle, the better. That's only one aspect of it, of course. If I could just ask one final quick question. Why do you want to be prime minister? Uh, to change Britain for the future and to tackle um, the inequalities that are there and to make us an even better country than we are already. Keir Starmer, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Andre. Thank you so much to Keir for joining us on the Ham and High podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe. And we'll be back again next week.